scripture reading that we just did is quite an analysis of sin and its entry into the world and the reality of death and domination that sin brings. But if you were to ask me, Pastor, what's the chief damage that sin has done uh, in the human race, upon the human soul? I would answer, it's turned us in upon ourselves. Sin has turned us away from God, and it's turned us in upon ourselves. We who were made to live for Him now are consumed with ourselves. Sin has made everything all about us. It makes us ask the question, outwardly or inwardly, what's in it for me? If sin had its way, life would always be about me. How could I be advantaged? How can I get what I want? What is in it for me? Relationships would be about what's in it for me. How are my benefited, helped, made richer, smarter, more successful, more power, more influential, more happy? That'd be the central thing. The central consideration, really the only real consideration of every action, every decision, every resolve, every endeavor would all turn around me. Now the disciples of the Lord Jesus were confident that Jesus leaving them would not be in their best interest at all. They were convinced that if he was to leave, everything would just be devastating. They were saddened. They were distressed of heart. And Jesus speaks the discourse of chapter 14 to quell that distress of heart. Let not your heart be troubled, he begins. And even in the point of our study last week, he ends the words of, I believe it's verse 28, uh, 27, with, uh, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. But they were confident that if Jesus would leave, they would not be benefited in the least. They would be left as orphans, without the presence of the one who had been to them everything, who had been their teacher, who had been their helper, who had been their defender, who had been their friend, their Lord and their master. He would be gone. And where would that leave them? But up to the point of our point of our study this morning, which is going to begin in the words of verse 29, up to this point, it's all been about Jesus instructing the disciples that in fact his departure will benefit them. He's covered the basis. He's thought of it all. He's not been unkind to them, insensitive to them. Remember in this former incident we read about in the other Gospels, they're on the sea in which there's a storm and Jesus is asleep. And their question in the midst of their trouble and fear is, Lord, do you not care that we perish? That's an astounding question to ask of the Son of God who came 
from the glory he had with the Father for that very reason. To, because he cared that we are perishing. He came that we might not perish, but have everlasting life. And yet they say, Lord, don't you care? Don't you care that we perish? Of course, he cared. He cared more than they cared for their good and their well-being and their life. But now that he's saying, I'm going, and where I'm going, you cannot come, how are we benefited? Well, Jesus tells them how. He was going to prepare a place for them in the Father's presence. He was going to pray the Father that he would give them another comforter, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, but they would receive. He told them he would hear and he would answer their prayers. He told them they would do greater works than these that he did, in some sense. The greater works that would extend the kingdom of God into the world. They would be taught by the Spirit how to carry on the work that had been given to do as the Spirit would teach them all things and bring all things to their remembrance, whatever Jesus had spoken to them. And finally he tells them, they would be the recipients of his peace. Peace I give to you. My peace I leave to you. And so in Jesus, my heart and mind, he was concerned about them. It was on the top of their list of things to be concerned about. Me, us, how we will fare. But Jesus wants to make it clear, it's really not all about them. In fact, even in the blessings that he's named, even in the comforts that he's given, even in the good things that will come to them, it's still the principal actors is not them. It's not what they would do. It's not what they're capable of doing. All of the principal actors are still the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. They are the ones that impart the blessings to the disciples through our Lord's dying and rising and ascending to the throne of the universe they're benefits to them but they're not benefits that are ultimate certainly not from them and not ultimately for them it's for a greater good and a greater glory and so in the 28th verse the focus changes Verse 28, here it's not about them at all. The focus moves to be all about Jesus, of whom in reality, that's what everything's about anyhow. It's the joy the disciples should be experiencing in the fact that he was going to the Father. Listen to the words. Verse 28 of chapter 14. He says, you heard me say to you, I am going away. And I will come to you, again, by the Spirit, certainly in resurrection, power, for 40 days before he ascends and the Spirit is given. They're not going to be left orphans. He will come to them. I'm going away and I will come to you. But if you loved me, I should say, but if you loved me, you would have rejoiced. Because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Well, this is a passage of scripture that unfortunately has been misunderstood and misused and taken out of its context and made to support 
notions and ideas very contrary to the truth of the full witness of God's word. And so I want to approach the text this morning beginning with the controversy that this text has created. We want to look at the controversy of the text and then once we dispel with the controversial part of the text, unfortunately it exists in the world. Now, Jesus didn't intend it to be controversial. He intended it to be part of his instruction to his disciples that ultimately was, was helpful. It ultimately set them straight on how their perspective about the future was to be with respect to his leaving. They should have rejoiced. He's going to the Father, but yet there's a controversy that comes out of those words, for the Father is greater than I. But then we want to, dispelling with the controversy, look at the challenge of the text. The challenge of the text to the disciples, and the challenge of the text to you and to me. So first, let's begin with the controversy. Now, I don't like to be a controversial preacher. I don't like to be a preacher that's always looking to take up those heresies that exist in the world and say, look, here's why this guy's wrong and that guy's wrong and that group's wrong and the next group's wrong and why we alone have the truth. But yet where controversy has arisen in the history of the church that's brought people to think that passages of scripture are suspect in terms of how they sound, that's usually the problem. It's not so much what the scriptures are saying, it's how they sound in our ears. We read a statement like, the Father is greater than I. And it sounds in our ears as if that seems to be conflicting with what other passages of Scripture seem to say. Well, in the way that it sounds, perhaps, but not in the way that it is. And the old writers would make the distinction between the sound of the Scriptures and the sense of the Scriptures. And we should not be just content with how Scripture sounds. When it sounds funny, and it sounds strange to our ears... That's a call to dig a little bit deeper, to do a deeper dive into the scriptures themselves to see what the sense of the matter is. Now sadly, this is a passage that's been used to advance the notion that Jesus, in some sense, is not true God. It denies his true and proper deity, that Jesus is saying that the Father is greater than I, is saying that I'm something less than God. And that's something that exists in the minds of the ancient heresy called Arianism, and in their modern successors, such as the Jehovah's Witnesses, who all seek to make our Lord to be a creature made by God, maybe a great preacher, a creature made by God, the first creature made by God, an exalted creature made by God, but a creature nonetheless, not eternal God at all. He's inferior to the Father. Not on the same level of being as the Father. So whatever we think of the Son, when you think of God, He's on one level, and the Son's beneath Him. And when you think of any creature being beneath Him, that means Jesus has more in common with us than He does with His Father. Now I believe Jesus has something in common with us because the eternal Son assumed humanity, He assumed a human nature, but eternally... He was one with the Father. Eternally, this very book of John begins upon the note that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right away, John wants us to know that this Jesus he's speaking about in this book is an eternal being. 
in the beginning. That's where Genesis 1-1 begins. When the universe began. John's saying, go back to the beginning of the universe. And you know what? The sun already was. The sun existed. The sun had pre-existence. In fact, his existence goes back to where there is no non-existence because it's an eternal existence. He already was. He existed with the Father, with the Father, and yet was God. Not less a God. Not a God with a small a, but fully God. And as the Gospel of John proceeds, we find more statements of his deity. The Jews took up stones to stone him. John 5 and verse 17, because he called God his own father, making himself equal with God. And at no point does Jesus ever say, no, guys, guys, wait a minute, wait a minute, put down those stones. You got me wrong. You have it all wrong. I didn't mean to make any such assertion as that. That was exactly the assertion that he was making. He was declaring his equality with God. We're at the end of the book of 1 John. And he makes the statement about Jesus. In the context, it's about Jesus. This is the true God and everlasting life. You see in chapter 12 of the gospel, where he quotes a passage from Isaiah chapter 6, about Jesus. In the context, it is about Jesus. And he says that Isaiah spoke this when he saw his glory and spoke of him. And then he quotes Isaiah 6. Well, what glory was seen in Isaiah 6? Isaiah says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw Yahweh high and lifted up. The train of his royal robe filled the temple. It's a temple vision of the enthroned God, Yahweh, God of Israel, God of the covenant. And John says, speaking of Jesus, Isaiah spoke of him when he saw his glory. The glory of the temple vision of Isaiah chapter 6. More than any other book of the scriptures, this is a book that boldly, openly, with direct statement and clear allusions and support of the reality of Jesus' true and proper deity. And to deny his deity is to make this passage at least from this passage, is really to say this passage really is at odds with the rest of John's witness. It's the odds with scriptures themselves. Uh, repeated statements are made about our Lord's true and proper divinity. In this very chapter, show us the Father, is the request that's made. Jesus responds, have I been with you so long, Philip, and do you not know me? He that has seen me has seen the Father. You think of the attributes of Jesus presented in the Gospel of John. Jesus saying to Nathaniel in chapter 1,
And my mind is drawing a complete blank on what he said. Let's turn there. In John chapter 1, he asked the question, How do you know me? He called him an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathaniel said to him in verse 48, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the tree, fig tree, he says, I saw you. I saw you. Well, where were you, Jesus? Well, Jesus didn't need to be locally present to see him. Because one aspect of his deity is his omnipresence. He's in all places. He saw him. That's why you can say, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in their midst. How can he be in our midst? Well, he's the second person of the deity. He's the son of God. He possesses the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He possesses the attributes of God. One of the attributes of God we teach to our children are the omnis, right? He is omnipresent. Well, if Jesus is God, he is omnipresent. Nathaniel knew he's omnipresent. And his reaction to this is, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Well, what's an explanation can, is warranted. Think of his omniscience as is presented in chapter 2. When John says he needed not anyone to bear witness of man because he knew what was in man. Now you and I, to know what's in man, we need people to tell us, someone to bear witness. Well, you know, so-and-so is this way because of this way and that. He had a bad upbringing. So you could have some sympathy with him because of his history. We need somebody to tell us about people for us to know them. Jesus didn't need that. He knew spontaneously what was in man because he's God. He's omniscient. He knows all things. At the end of the gospel, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Peter finally gets exasperated and says, Lord, you know all things. You know all things. You know that I love you. He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. He's also omnipotent. All power is possessed of him. He makes that declaration in Matthew 28. But also we see it in operation. In his complete control over all nature. Creative power that's exhibited in his feeding of the multitudes. Taking a few loaves and fish and multiplying. How do you multiply matter? How do you multiply fish and bread to feed a multitude? You need to be omnipotent. See him walking on the sea. How do you do that? Walking on a stormy sea. It's an act of God. It's, an act, it's, it's the power of God in display in its fullness. Think of what's described in chapter 5. When Jesus speaks of the judgment of the last day. All judgment's been given unto the Son. How does a creature exercise judgment? You got to know everything about everybody. You got to be God to do such a thing. And then in his voice, the dead will rise. The hour is coming when those that are in the tomb will what? Hear the voice of the Son of God, and they will come forth. Just as Lazarus heard the voice of the Son of God in chapter 11. Lazarus, come forth. 
Now, if Jesus had just said, come forth, I don't know if the other dead would have come forth, but he specified, Lazarus, you're the one he's calling to come forth. He speaks to the dead. And they hear his voice. And they come forth from the tomb. You see him receiving the worship of men. Who but God receives the worship of men? Yet Thomas declares, my Lord and my God. You see, you can't take one passage out of context to deny a doctrine so clearly taught in so many other places of the scriptures. The sense of John's gospel is clearly that the deity of Christ he believed. The true divine nature of Jesus was something he conveys over and over and over again. So if you got 25 references to Christ's deity, and you have one reference to his possible questioning his deity in a statement such as this, you've got to step back and say, wait a minute, what's the context of the statement? And why is he making the statement? Well, because you see, other statements are given in John's Gospel about Jesus. It's not just that he's eternal God. He is eternal God. But he is more than eternal God. For again, going back to the prologue in chapter 1, what do we read in verse 14? We read the Word. The Word that was in the beginning. The Word that was with God. The Word that was God. Became flesh. And dwelt among us. And we behold his glory. Now again, that does not diminish the glory. We beheld his glory. The Shekinah glory that was present in the tabernacle. John's using a word that speaks, we, he pitched his tent among us. Just as God pitched the tent of his presence in Israel in the wilderness. That was the tent of God's presence. It was the tent of meeting. And Jesus comes and pitches his tent among us. Why? Because he is the presence of God among us. He's the place of meeting with God. But to do that, he takes flesh. The flesh becomes the tent. The flesh becomes the tabernacle. The flesh becomes the temple. Destroy this temple. In three days I will raise it. He's speaking of the temple of his body. And so Jesus took to himself a true body, a human body, possessed of a true human soul. A soul that grew in wisdom and in knowledge and favor of God with man. A human nature that has all the attributes of a true human nature. That means you can only be in one place at one time in a true human nature. His humanity is not omnipresent. His humanity is not omnipotent. His humanity is capable of death. He dies upon the cross. Now, I don't understand how God could be God and man in one person, but he is. And so, when you have that reality of the God-man Christ Jesus, then all the things that we read about in Scripture that speak about his unity with his Father, his oneness with God, his divine attributes, those are all true, not of his humanity, but of his deity. 
His deity is not, his humanity is not eternal. His humanity was not in the beginning. He took flesh in time and dwelt among us. That make sense? So then when we read scriptures like this, I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. It's speaking about his humanity. The Father is greater than the humanity of Jesus. Now what's true of each nature is also true of the person. So Jesus said the Father is greater than I. But not with respect to the divine nature. With respect to his person because of the human nature. Because he was incarnate. And his incarnation brings a new reality about when Jesus says, I go to be with the Father. And that he's going to the Father's presence in a new and different way that never existed prior to his incarnation. Because though in one sense he says, glorify me with the glory I had with you from the foundation of the world, what enters the presence of God is a glorified humanity that never was there before. It's the Son returning to the Father, the Son returning to his true and proper sphere, which is not really this earth, at least in terms of his eternal existence, but his true and proper sphere is with the Father. But this incarnate humanity now is a glorified humanity, and it enters into the throne room of God, and it takes the place of of all authority in heaven and earth at the right hand of the majesty on high so that humanity becomes glorified in Jesus and we hope for glory too right but as co-heirs along with Christ not the one that brought this reality into existence our humanity is glorified because of Christ he's the trailblazer into the presence of the father For the joy that was before him, Hebrews tells us. He endured the cross, despising the shame. And now was at the right hand of the majesty on high. For the joy that was set before him. Now the cross was not a thing of joy. It's a thing of glory, John tells us. The glory of God's revealed at the cross. But it certainly wasn't a thing of joy. That the Son of God would endure crucifixion. That the Son of God would endure the judgment of our sins. That the Son of God would endure the sense of forsakenness of the Father's presence. But for the joy that was set before him means his glorified humanity entering into the presence of the Father. Enthroned in glory. To be the object of the worship of the angels, to be the object of the worship of the spirits of just men made perfect. Now he's returning to his true and proper sphere, but as the God-man, who through death and resurrection had changed the world, had redeemed a multitude from sin, a multitude that no man could number from every kindred, tongue, and tribe, and who would be in his mediatorial work at the right hand of the majesty on high as the God-man Christ Jesus. He would be gathering people into his kingdom through the preaching of the gospel. He would govern the work that the Father had given him to do 
to be salvation to the ends of the earth. See, the work of Christ, the atonement was complete at the cross. It is finished, he declared. The work of atoning for human sin, that was achieved, that was accomplished. But you see, the priest wasn't done with his work when he had done the work of atonement. There was still the work of daily burning of the incense on the altar of incense. There was the work of intercession, the work of continuing to teach and to rule and to subsist the people of God. And Jesus continues to do all that as the one who intercedes for us, as the one who is our heavenly paraclete, who is the one who continues to be a helper of his people. You see, what Jesus is telling his disciples is we're not doing a march on Jerusalem here. My kingdom is not going to be earthly, set up from Jerusalem or Rome or Alexandria, but it will be a rule that he would exercise in glory, in the presence of the Father, sit at my right hand, to have made your enemies the footstool of your feet. He's being exalted to heavenly realms, would elevate Jesus above the human scene of sin and woe and discord and conflict and everything we endure in this age. And Jesus would enter into a state and condition far greater than anything he'd ever experienced upon this earth in terms of his humanity. And he would, from that place of universal sovereignty, establish and further his kingdom in the world. It won't be from Jerusalem. It'll be from the throne of God's glory. And for us all the disciples should be glad. If you loved me, you would rejoice. I'm going to the Father. I'm going to the presence of God. I'm going in my glorified humanity into the presence of God. He's greater than I. And from that place of greater glory, from that place of the greatness of His throne, I would establish things and further things and achieve things I could never achieve had I remained with you upon this earth. And if they had any concern for Jesus... If they had any love for Jesus, which I think at this point is probably in short supply, they're thinking of themselves. But if they would have love for Jesus, which I believe that ultimately would come to its full expression, they would be glad for him. That the Lord they claim to believe in and worship and love was in his Father's presence. Think what they wanted him to do again. They wanted him to engage in an armed conflict upon the earth. That he was going to the throne of glory to bring in a kingdom of peace. What's greater? What's greater? It's a greater end. It's a greater glory. It's a greater work. It's a greater place from which to do this work. Ascending to the realm of power and authority in the Father's right hand to extend a kingdom of peace to a world in conflict. And that's the contrast. 
the human and the divine, the exaltation to heavenly realms that would elevate Jesus in his humanity as a God-man to the place of divine rule and universal sovereignty, establishing and furthering his kingdom in the world. If you love me, you would rejoice because I go to the Father to enjoy the glory of a greater presence, a greater realm, a greater power, a greater rule than anything I can do or know or achieve in this earthly realm. I think that's what Jesus is telling them, why he needs to leave, why he needs to go to the Father's why he can't stay because these ends will never be accomplished if he does not grow to the Father's presence through the cross, through the resurrection to the ascension to the exaltation to the sending forth of the Spirit this is God's way of bringing in his kingdom the kingdom that they ought to have a vested interest in but to have a vested interest in his kingdom you've got to think more more of him than yourself. You can't only be consumed with your own interests. And I guess then the question comes to us. Do we rejoice? I mean, genuinely rejoice in the things that advance the interests of Jesus. If you were to get a certified letter that says your uncle in Budapest that you never met you don't even know he existed why is he in Budapest anyway but he died and he left you a small fortune you'd rejoice I'd rejoice we'd all rejoice we'd all rejoice in the things that advance our interests Do we have a similar sense of exaltation? I mean, think of it. Think of it in the gut of your, in your gut. The kind of joy you'd experience at those realities that are earthly. What about the realities that are heavenly? What about the realities that advance the interests of Jesus in the world? When you hear of God doing something in the world to bring people to himself, you read of a revival, you hear of a great work, a great act of God that, in which people are coming into the kingdom. Is that something you exalt in? Is that something that brings genuine happiness to your heart and your soul? Do you love him? You rejoice in everything, in anything that advances the interests of his kingdom. You rejoice in all that he is and all that he's done to bring in that kingdom and to further that kingdom. The things of the gospel will become a greater joy to you than all the things that the world can offer. Again, he says, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives, but it's his joy as well that he gives. And I want to say that, that you know, we have joy even in the midst of our troubles, even in the midst of our afflictions, because even in the midst of our afflictions, the greater concern is not ours. It's not what, 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 what we're not turned in ourselves, in other words, we're turned outward to the interests of the kingdom of the living God.
And then when you think of Jesus' statement of the greatness of the Father, sometimes that gets excluded. Because we're going to compare the Son's greatness to Father's greatness. But the point is, Jesus is saying, I'm going to the Father, but the Father is greater than I. And even a, a, a God-man could see in the God of heaven the revelation of his greatest. Jesus could reflect upon the greatness of the Father. Even when honor and dignity he possessed as the incarnate son this greatness he saw in his father that he wanted to be reunited with he wanted to be in the place of the revelation of that greatness do we recognize just how great God is are we thankful for that greatness are we filled with expectancy at greater revelations of the greatness of God Think of what heaven will be like. Think of what the new heavens and new earth will be like when we'll know more and see more and understand more of the greatness as well as the goodness of the God of heaven and earth. And then do we rejoice in the reality of the one who is upon the throne of the universe, who's gone to the Father as the God-man, gone to the place of the Father's presence, as the mediator of a new covenant, as, as Paul tells us, the mediator between God and man, himself man, Christ Jesus. And again, it's not as if Paul is denying the deity of Jesus. We could go through Paul's letters and see again and again and again how Paul affirms the deity of Christ, the equality of Jesus with the Father. Again and again, we see that note sounded. And yet, when he thinks of Jesus, the mediator, he thinks of the human mediator. He thinks of the mediator who comes between us and God as one who knows our situation fully, who is filled with compassion for us because of his knowledge of our, of, of our humanity. He's himself man. He's approachable. He's sympathetic. He enters in with fullness of, of interest to our own concerns as one has been there. Because he walked the earth and he knew the struggles and he was tempted at all points as we are and yet without sin. He's on that throne of glory working out his mediatorial purposes in a place and in a position that can never be hindered, can never be thwarted, can never be delayed from the throne of divine sovereignty. A work he continues to exercise that's replete with the goodness and with the mercy and with the saving provision of the God of heaven. Rejoice, the Lord is King, your Lord and King adore. Rejoice, give thanks and sing and triumph evermore. Lift up your heart, lift up your voice, rejoice again, I say, rejoice. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful that we can look into your word this morning and see something of the glory of our Savior, see something of the saving work of our Savior, seeing something of the heavenly exaltation of our Savior, see him in something of the fullness of being all that we need, as one who is God and yet one who is also man. And bless you and praise you for all that we have in him. 
So be pleased to bless your word. Give us to think upon these things and give us understanding in them, we plead, as we come to you in Jesus' name. Amen.